Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Adele Golf, hit it, flip it. Dial it in and the Mecklemore Club experience live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I've got another great show in store for you tonight, folks. So, Thank you again, first of all, for making Next on the Tee a part of your weekly golf content. And thank you for continuing to vote for the show in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list. You put the show inside the top 10 for the last four months. Please continue to vote by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. You can vote for your three favorite podcasts there. I appreciate, though, that you continue to make Next on the Tee one of those you're voting for. Okay, on to tonight's show. And first up is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. I'm going to get TP's thoughts on Scotty Scheffler's rise to being number one in the world golf rankings. We'll also talk about the amount of golf he had to play to win the WGC. 66 holes, folks. And that was just on Saturday and Sunday. Doesn't count the first three matches. Doesn't count the round of 16 to get to the Elite Eight and then the Elite Eight into the Final Four. We'll also talk about all the buzz around Tiger showing up in Augusta today. Plus, we'll get a couple of playing lessons as well to help you start off the new golf season right. Tom's going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from nine-time winner between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, another TP, Tom Pertzer. I'm going to get Tom's memories from his win at the 1991 World Series of Golf. I'll also get his thoughts on the Players' Championship and how, as Hal Sutton put it a couple of weeks ago, Pete Dye, with his designs, likes to pull your eyes to where the trouble is. We'll see what Tom thinks about that. We'll also talk about his experience playing at Augusta National, his near hole-in-one in the final round of the 1982 Open Championship, his opinion on the whole Phil Saudi tour situation, plus a lesson for a swing key that we can all use when we start our swing to make sure we're getting it started out on plane. Looking forward to having Tom back as part of the show. He'll join me about 20 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a return visit from 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. We'll revisit that win at the 89 Open, including the birdie he needed to make on the 72nd hole to force a playoff with Greg Norman. So we'll talk about how to pull off the perfect tee shot and second shot to give yourself a run at a birdie when you need it most. We'll also talk about his win at the 2007 Pods Championship. Mark opened that tournament with a 75, wrote on his official scorecard, I effing suck after a back nine 39. That night he went out, bought a new putter, then shot rounds of 67, 62, and 70 to win the golf tournament. We'll talk about that little pep talk he gave himself and a whole lot more when Mark joins me later on in this hour. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from two-time winner on tour, Rick Fair. 
Rick helped BYU win the national championship in 1981, along with our good friend Richard Zockel. He was also low amateur at the 1984 Masters and U.S. Open. We'll talk about that, plus his wins at the 1986 BC Open and 1994 Disney World Classic when Rick joins me at the top of the next hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. My buddies and I were there last year for our annual golf trip, and it was so amazing. We're going back again this year. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant, which is called The Craig, has outstanding food and service. And the course lived up to every great expectation that we had for it. I can't say enough great things about the place. Folks, you got to go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. And Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about the course and the resort by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf's an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new TaylorMade Stealth Irons. Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less than perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. All right, now back with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Tom and I reach another milestone tonight because it's visit number 60 with him on the show, which proves I am a glutton for punishment. For everyone in the Naples and Fort Myers areas, if you want to play your best golf in 2022, go see Tom at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club in Fort Myers. You don't have much time now because in a couple of months, Tom is going to be back for a second year at Farmington Country Club up in Charlottesville, Virginia. So get ready if you're in the Virginia, West Virginia, or D.C. areas. If you can't go see Tom in person, download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing. He can help get you dialed in through that app. Plus, check out his website, TomPatry.com, and give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram at TomPatryGolf. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can watch nearly 150 free video playing lessons. He's uploaded some great ones here in the last couple of days. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board, and it always makes me smile to say he is now back with me tonight here on Next on the T. ATP, how are you, my friend? Hey, how are you, Tom? Oh, boy, Chrissy, it's unbelievable. So great talking to you. It's unbelievable to hear your voice. Just incredible. <laughs> I feel the same. Tom, I want to start yeah. our time tonight. I got to get your thoughts. We got a new world number one, Scotty Scheffler. Only Tiger and Jordan Spieth needed fewer starts to reach number one. Now, keep in mind, for all of you wondering how fast Jack or Seve 
reached number one. The World Golf Rankings didn't come into being until 1986. So those legends aren't factored in here. But, Tom, we all know that Scotty has won three of his last five starts. It was 42 days from his first tour win to becoming number one in the world. Shortest time period in history for that to happen. Is he a player that you think has staying power at the top of the ranking? Well, you know, Christy, if you look at his if you look at his record as a golfer, going back to his junior days, I mean, he's won consistently at every level he's played at. You know, U.S. Junior Champion, great college player, um, you know, proved himself, you know, rising through the ranks. And you know, if you watch him the last couple of years, he had some really, really near misses and 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 didn't do much wrong. Got beat by a couple of people that played better, um, and you know, just got on a little bit of roll and get that little that just a little insurgence of confidence and get over that hump. He was a guy you were waiting to win once. He thought the floodgates would open, and they certainly did. Um, you know, he's played some incredible golf the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the of the computer rankings because and I'm not taking anything away from Scotty's three wins, but to, to go from where he was to world number one because of one hot streak in one short period of time, I don't think that's a good barometer for a world number one. We certainly, if you look over, you know, if you look over a body of work of a year or two-year period, uh, I just think there would be more, you know, more advantageous to really deciding who's number one in the world. But certainly, he's on a hell of a streak right now. He's hot, and and maybe getting hot at the right time with that little trip to that place in Georgia coming up, huh? Indeed. Before we before we talk about it, guest, I want to get your thoughts. World the, the WGC, the World Golf Championship, awful lot of golf has to be played oh in God. order to advance, you know, into the final rounds and to win the darn thing. I mean, Scotty played 66 holes and four matches just between Saturday and Sunday alone. And then you got, you know, the three matches to start, you know, the bracket play, and that that, that gets you to the round of 16. Then you got to win to get to the eighth, and then obviously to the four. <laughs> so that's a heck of a lot of golf to play to win the WGC. I mean, I think Kevin Kisner, who had a heck of a run, just was out of gas by the finals Sunday afternoon. It seems to me like it's an awful lot of golf to ask, ask a bunch of guys to play, you know, two weeks before the Masters. And, and oh, by the way, for Scotty Seffler, this week's the Valero Texas Open. He's a Texas guy. I'm sure he'd love to go back yeah. and play that tournament. I don't know that there's anything left in the tank for that. And then if he does do that, then you get to go walk Augusta National, which you and I both know is no easy walk in the park to take on that golf course. I mean, that's just so much golf and so much effort in a short period of time. Is it too much? They just came off the Florida swing where they got their asses kicked at Bay Hill. That, that golf course at, 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 in Tampa is not an easy golf course, right? Yeah. The, uh, the bear trap at West Palm Beach is not an easy golf course. And, and, and then they go and they play a marathon in the WGC. And it's all leading up to, you know, probably in, in some people's books, the most important week of the year in April at, at a tournament you and I hold very dear. I, I got to question the schedule and, and I got to question the difficulty of the golf courses in the stretch. I got to tell you, if I was playing really well and had played Bay Hill and West Palm and Valspar, I don't care how much money's involved. And I didn't talk about TPC, did I? In the marathon no. there, right? Right. I don't know if I would have. I, I, I might have skipped this one. I probably, probably played two out of the four in Florida. 
and skip this and maybe play the Texas Open and then gone to Augusta. But I, I, I think scheduling is really difficult. And I know they're playing for a lot of money, you know, at, at TPC. You can't skip, can't skip TPC, obviously. And that's got to be on your schedule. And you got to be, you got to be fresh for Augusta. You got to be rested for Augusta. I, I got to question some of these, some of these schedules. I really do. Yeah. And I feel bad for Scheffler because, hey, great win. No question. And like you say, he's on a heater and all that sort of stuff. But I'm sure he, he would love to win the Texas Open being a Texas guy. But I just don't know how you go from playing all that golf at the WGC, then go to Texas and then go to Augusta National. I just don't think, to your point, I don't think you can be rested, and I don't think you can be in top form going through all of that. I mean, I, you know, young guys, I get it. Maybe they have all that stamina in the world, and they're in great shape and all that yeah. sort of stuff. I just think it's like, like a lot. You, like you said, Chris, Augusta's no easy walk in the park, and if I'm Scotty, I got, you know, I know you want to play in Texas and everything, but I, I gotta hope, I gotta hope for his sake that he's got the sense to take this week off and Rest and, and maybe get the best a couple of days early and, and you know play some nine hole rounds and just kind of ease into it. And speaking of Augusta National, Tom, everybody's all a buzz now. Tiger showing up there today to what I imagine is to see if he can just walk that golf course. I mean, it's going to be a, a tough task. Like we say, it's one of the toughest walks in golf. And if he can walk the golf course, if he can do it in back to back days, let alone play golf, I just think he's trying to measure up whether he can do it or not. I don't know. What do you think? What uh, What do you think are his chances of actually teeing it up on Thursday? I I didn't you know I didn't think for a second, and I got to admit that I, I may I may be wrong. I don't know yet. We don't know yet. But I didn't think for a second he was going to play Augusta. I thought he was going to wait till probably St Andrews and play a much flatter golf course um, and make that his comeback place. But you know, every time you and I pull, you know, tell him, tell this guy, think this guy can't do something. He pulls a rabbit out of the hat, and we both look at a bunch of idiots, you know. Um, so I'm 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 done pulling against him. I'm I'm kind of trying to guess what he can and can't do because I think, you know, once he puts the cape on and yes on his chest, he can do just about anything in the world. But uh, I, boy, I tell you, I got to believe with what we saw him go through medically and physically that 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 walk's got to be brutal for four or five days in a row, you know, depending on practice rounds and how he approaches it and I, I if he if he does it and pulls it off in place even half decently it would be spectacular. Just spectacular. Tom as a guy who played his college golf in Florida, I've got Mark Kalkavecchia joining me here a little bit later on tonight. He went to University of Florida. I imagine you ran into Mark once or twice and the guys he played with and that Florida team. What do you remember about Mark? Being at the University of Florida. First of all, Mark Kalkovecki is such a great guy. He's a, he's a, an old friend. We, we, you know, far as Southern and Florida played in a lot of tournaments, even though we were a Division II team, we played in a lot of same tournaments back then. It was a little different. College golf was a little different then. And we had a good team and we got invited to a lot of D1 tournaments. Uh, that team was, uh, a couple of names you'll know. Kenny Green was on that team. Rick Pearson was on that team. Billy Britton was on that team. Uh, a guy named Larry Rents, who you may or may not know, who played before a little bit off and on, and was a really, really good player who was on that team. Um, and I, I just remember every guy in that team was a character, and they, they were they were just out of their minds. I remember one story that Mark told me. Uh, Larry Rents was a hell of an athlete from Lanham, Maryland, 
and Charlie Pell, Charlie Pell was the football coach at Florida, and he had an open tryout going on, and, and Rents went over with his open tryout. He was on scholarship on the golf team, and John Dar was the golf coach, and he got this phone call that he better run over to the football stadium because Larry Rents was about to make the football team. And he went over there, and he was trying out for punter, and, and Pell had, Pell, Charlie Pell had a guy on, on scholarship that was a, you know, almost an all-American punter, and Rents was wearing him out. <laughs> and they ran over there, and he, and he begged Charlie Pell, he said, this guy is one of my best players, and Calc was with him, and he said, and Dar was like pleading with him just to know. And luckily, in the punt-off, the, 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 the punter that was on the football team just got him by a couple of yards in the last punt-off, and, or was, <laughs> Rents would have been wearing a helmet, not carrying a golf bag. <laughs> but they had, they had some great athletes on the team. I mean, obviously, Mark went on to win the British Open, and uh, and you know Kenny Green was a was a Ryder Cup player. Rick Pearson played uh, off and on on tour. Was a really fine player. Billy Britton won on tour, uh, all on the same on the same college team, and it was a hell of a team. And uh, and and those guys were just fun. Every one of them was a fun guy. Every single one of them. Tom, switching gears a little bit, want to get your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau and the fact that we haven't seen a lot of Bryson lately. Injuries, things like that happening to him. Yeah, Your thoughts on all the things that we were praising him for last year, hmm, starting to feel a little different this year. You know, Chris, you and I had a little discussion off the air, and, and I, I'm not saying anything happened or didn't happen, but, you know, he, he really got very, very strong very, very quickly during COVID. Uh, his body changed very, very rapidly. And, and, you know, I've always said that if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it waddles like a duck, there's a good chance it's a duck. And then all of a sudden, he's got these injuries all of a sudden. Do you have any idea what might have been going on there, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I would hate to speculate, T.P. I don't think that's not possible, right? I'm just, I, I can't, I can't, that, that couldn't be possible, right? I'm, I mean, I'm just barking up the wrong tree. I got to be, right? You got to be. Yeah, that can't, yeah. what you're thinking can't be. So. Yeah, no, can't. I'll just put that aside. I'll just leave it on. <laughs> Tom, for those of us that uh, subscribe to your email newsletter, and everybody should go to Tom's website, tompatry.com, to sign up. You wrote something that I that I found very profound, and you said, "I have always felt the X factor between good and great is attitude." Personally, I've never been very good. As a social golfer, my training and mindset have always been competitively, competitively driven. I needed the green light to be on. You could be the most sound technician on the planet, but without attitude, you are a zero gamer. I always loved when my palms were sweaty, my hands trembled a bit, and I had trouble breathing. When I felt that way, headed to the first tee, I knew I was tuned in. If you can't embrace those feelings, in my opinion, yours, you'll never be a gamer. Without those feelings, I was never at my best. I missed those days. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, Chris, I, I remember the first experience that, that the experience that's most vivid in my mind about that is I, I, I played the South African Tour in 84, and I, uh, I, I got paired in the first round of the South African Masters with a player named Ubayaki, who's not a household name to American players, certainly in this day and age, but Ubayaki won multiple times on the European Tour, South African Open champion. Uh, played in several Masters, really, really fine world-class player, and he, he certainly was a superstar in South Africa. And why they paired me with him in the first round, I guess it was that NCAA Division II National Championship that got me there. But <laughs> they paired me. They paired me with him, and and 
I remember going into the locker room on Wednesday after my practice and looking at the pairing sheet, and I saw who I was paired with, and I knew who he was, and I knew how big his name was in South Africa, and I thought to myself, oh, my God. Because the South African Masters in South Africa, even in 84, their tour is a TV tour. It's got ropes and galleries. It's got grandstands, and, they, and, and the people really come out and support that tour. And I remember warming up on Thursday morning, and, and, you know, the place was buzzing and everybody was, was in Cape Town. It was on a Minx golf course. It was a pretty hard golf course. The wind was blowing. And, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. And I walked to the first tee and it, it was, it was, there was a lot of people around the first tee. You know, it was packed. And I walked to the inside ropes and, and greeted the starter and walked into the back left corner of the tee. And I had sunglasses on. I pulled my visor down. And I remember that I was just, you know, absolutely going to, I thought I was going to pee down my leg. Um, and I was back there with my caddy, and then all of a sudden there was this, this rumbling and this noise and some applause, and I, I knew what was going on. Mr. Baki was coming to the first tee, and he walked on the first tee and kind of stopped by the, by the tee markers and was kind of lounging through his bag a little bit, and he looked back, and he saw me standing quite a ways back on the tee in the corner, and he, and he walked back to me, and this, is, this would never happen today, and very few people would do this, but he extended his hand and he said, Tom, uh, I'm Yubayaki. And I, and I kind of was like, yeah, I know who you, I know who you are. You know, I didn't even say, and he, and he said, he said, are you okay? He could clearly see that I was crapping my pants. And I said, uh, no, not really. And he put his arm around me, and he said, you know what? He said, let me tell you something. You hit a nice old T-shirt off this first tee. By the time we get up to the screen, they're all going to be invisible. And I thought to myself, what? And my hands were shaking. I was kind of clammy, and I was having trouble breathing. And, and he, hit a, he hit a beautiful drive off of number one, and it was my turn to hit, and I got up there, and I, I remember Chris just thinking, God Almighty, just make contact with this thing. Just just hit it on the face somewhere. And somehow I hit a really solid shot down the middle. We walked down to the one, and we hit our second shots on the green. And I hold about a 15-footer for three, and we're walking to the second tee, and these people are running to the second tee around us, and he put his arm back around me again. He said, they're all kind of, they're all kind of invisible now, aren't they? And I said, you know, they really are. He goes, let's have some fun. Wow. And I remember, I remember that he didn't, you know, who would do that, right, to a, to a competitor? I mean, who would be that gracious and that, that humble and that nice and, and realize that the young guy was really, really needed some oxygen. Um, but it, it really, it felt great. And that, I mean, as, as crazy as it sounds, all those feelings, I've always embraced those feelings. They, I knew when I felt that way that I was, I was ready to play golf. And I am a terrible social golfer. When I, when I, I go out there, I go out there nowadays with members and I'm, I'm always good for 75 because I just, I'm just going to make a couple of sloppy swings and, you know, people are chatting about what they had for dinner last night and how good the wine was and whose cocktail party they went to. And that's just not, that's just not the way I was raised on golf. You know, and I was, I was raised and, and I was kind of, room to compete and that anybody who wants to compete has been in that mode and, and if Trevino was good at that and there, there were players that are good at that I, I was never good at that Chi Chi was good at that and I had it had to mean something a little bit more for me to get to get locked in um and I think that these these young kids they have cell phones and social media and iPads and earbuds and I, I just don't see many of them as tuned in as as either I was or guys that I really respected as competitors were. I think it's, it's, I think it's a different animal today. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. And speaking of being ready to play golf, I want to get a couple of lessons from you. As you know, do you have any money? Um, do you have any money? 
Do you have any money? <laughs> we'll talk off the air. Do you have yeah, Chris, do you have Venmo? Do you have Venmo? <laughs> I've heard of that. I don't know what to do with it, but I've heard of it. For those of us that don't live in Florida, and like my hometown, Pittsburgh, got snow over the weekend, um, cool. golf isn't exactly like riding a bike. You can't just pick it out of the garage, take it out of the garage, and then start riding. Um, for those of us that are just starting to get ready for a new golf season, talk to us about being prepared and really getting our games kind of the rust off of it and being ready to go out there and play. Do we need to start from the beginning? Are you a proponent of, Hey, let's, let's go back to the fundamentals. Let's, let's go through the grip, the posture and all of that. Um, talk, talk to us about how you like to get your students ready for the first rounds of the year. Well, cause I, you know, you know, the answer to most of this question because you know me long enough. I mean, I, I just think that if you have been doing things all winter long, like swinging an orange grip or swinging a weighted club or stretching or putting indoors or, you know, finding a place with heaters to hit balls at least once a week or just keeping, keeping yourself somewhat what I call golf attached. Um, I think you're really behind the eight ball if you waited this long. If, if you have waited this long, you know, don't run to the first pick. I mean, if you, if you're going to, if you see the weather breaking, you think you're, you know, a week or so away from, or two weeks away from, you know, the weather being decent, get the orange whip out, get the weighted club out, start stretching, start putting indoors, find a place to hit some balls. Don't, don't schedule your first round with your buds if you haven't had two or three or four rain sessions under your belt and hit some shots and you can at least get the thing on the ball on the club face. Cause you're going to go out there and commit golf suicide, and, and you're going to get, get to the round, and the, and the year started on a really bad note. I mean, Bobby Knight told me, piss-poor preparation leads to piss-poor performance. <laughs> and I always remember what Coach said to me about that, and you, you can't play this game when you're not prepared. And, you, and you know, just from a timing standpoint, a, a balance and tempo standpoint, if you've been locked up indoors and done nothing all winter, you need to make a lot of repetitions you know, and, and not necessarily big repetitions or long clubs. Just hit tons and tons of wedges. Make some contact. You know, feel the feel the ball on the face. You know, be able to get to your left side in a balanced state. You know, work on the timing and tempo of your motion. Just just get the basic things. Like you said, grip, stance, aim, and alignment. You know, get get your posturing in a good place. Take a little bit of video. Check in with maybe your professional. Um, don't run to the first tee. Just don't do that right away. And Tom, like I mentioned in your intro, you've added some really great content to your YouTube channel over the last few days. Um, let's talk about scoring iron. Seven, eight, nine, pitching wedge, sand wedge. You, you call those precision irons, not distance irons. And we should hit them as if we're throwing darts. Talk about what that means. Well, I mean, you know, Chris, you turn in, tune into CBS on Sunday afternoon and you'll hear things like, you know, JT's hitting a you know grip down eight iron, or Tom Morikawa's holding off on a, holding off a nine iron, or he's hitting a, a knockdown wedge. Those guys don't hit very many full shots inside 150 or 160 yards. Uh, and, and I mentioned that in my in my uh, my video both on Titleist.com and on my YouTube channel where you can find all this content. I, I mentioned a lot about. You know, gripping down on the club a little bit, making a three-quarter, three-quarter motion. I talk about the, the green. Don't think about hitting greens. Think about hitting the quadrant of the green 
that you that you see the pin in, whether it's front left, front right, back left, or back right. You know, aim small, miss small, aim big, miss big. Controlling the ball flight, controlling the trajectory. You know, playing playing very very controlled golf shots uh, in what I call the scoring range. Uh, I don't hit any full shot, any full shots from 150 and in. For example, Chris. If I stood on a range with you and we had a track man on and we hit some seven irons, my seven iron would be about 165-yard club. On the golf course, it's like a 152-155 club. It's it's never 100%. It's always some kind of controlled action to control the quality of contact, the spin rate, and the trajectory in the online start. Um, I, I don't see great players hitting many, very many full short irons, and I consider seven iron to L-wedge short iron. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing. Again, your YouTube channel and all of that. I don't want. I don't want. I don't want to go yet. I don't want to go yet. I want to talk more. Let's. Can we talk more? I don't want to go. Yet. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to ask Tom Pertzer. Because <laughs> uh, all the all the usual animals: Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, com. But what about? What about your ranking on Podcast Magazine? Let's talk about that for a second, just for one second. Okay. I mean, that is unbelievable. You have done an incredible job. You are the man in golf podcasts. Nobody's even close to you, dude. You're the best. Look at the lineup you have, mate. British Open champion, tour winners, some old washed-up teacher. I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> the people you put. I mean, you know, it, it, seriously, you know, aside from me, which is like, you know, like you throw me a bone. People you have on are incredible. How do you do it, man? You are, you don't belong in some podcast. What, what is ESPN listening? Is, is serious radio listening? Is are the golf channel people listening to you? I mean, dude, it's only a matter of time. You're the best in the whole world. Well, I appreciate you saying that, DP, and from your lips to God's ears, my friend. You're fantastic. I can't wait uh, two more weeks. You'll be back. Show number sixty-one. Tell uh, tell Mister. Percher, Mr. Kalkovecki, I said hi. They're great people, great players. And, and listen, does Tom Percher have a beautiful golf swing or what? That's all I got to say. Yeah. To that. 100%. If, if I could copy-paste, I'd do it right now. Oof. I think we all would. Oof. So, Oof. Have a great night, Chris. All right, TP. Take care, my friend. That's a great Tom Patrick. TomPatry.com is the website. YouTube channel. Just put in this in the search, Tom, uh, Tom Patrick, because... So many great lessons and a whole bunch got uploaded this week that I that I liked and watched and I can't say enough great things. A about Tom Patrick, the man, B Tom Patrick, the instructor, and C the amount of free content that he is giving all of us to improve our golf game. Looking forward to catching up with TP again in a couple of weeks. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Tom Pertzer, I want to talk to you about our new friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter? or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides 
balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back with me is PGA Tour legend Tom Pertzer. Tom has become a wonderful friend of the show over the last year. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Des Moines, Iowa, played his college golf at Arizona State from 1970 to 73. He turned pro later that year in 73. Got his first tour victory at the 1977 Glen Campbell Los Angeles Open by one stroke over Lanny Watkins. Tom won five times on the PGA Tour and four more times on the Champions Tour. In all, he has 15 professional wins. And as most of you know, and as as Tom Patrick just said a moment ago, Tom Percher's always been known as having the sweetest swing on tour. And it's always a huge thrill to have him with me here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm fantastic, Tom. How about yourself? What's been going on with you? Um, not much. Just, I've got a little shoulder nick knock, so, um, haven't been hitting many balls lately, but, um, it's, it's getting better. So I'm kind of excited about starting to hit balls again. You know, when, when you don't get to hit balls, you really miss it. (laughs) Yeah. Tom Patrick and I were talking about that uh, prior to the show going on. So, yeah, I understand that completely. Mm -hmm. Tom, I want to start our time tonight by getting your perspective on this new Saudi tour thing and Phil Mickelson getting all mixed up in that, trying to leverage the PGA Tour against the Saudi Tour to get some things I think that he wanted out of the PGA Tour. What are your thoughts on what's been going on with all of that? Yikes. Do you want to start with that? (laughs) (laughs) i figure let's start off big well i just you know to me um greg has always had it in for the pga tour you know he he tried to get that he tried to get the same thing going i don't know in the early 90s or mid 90s or whatever it was that where he was going to take 30 players and and do the same thing with 30 players so he He's had it in for the tour, and, you know, it's it's just not – well, Jack and Arnold had – I remember I was in a player meeting probably in the late 80s, early 90s maybe, and somebody had come to Jack and Arnold with the same thing. Um, they wanted to kind of branch off and have it a, you know, um, you know, really small, exclusive field, and both Jack and Arnold said, no, we're not doing that because it'll ruin the tour. Um, you know, it, it, it bothers me when I see a comment from Phil Mickelson about how the tour is, is, um, greedy. Um, and, you know, and, and that he doesn't have his rights or whatever he said exactly. I don't know exactly what he said, but kind of bothers me. You know, the, the tour, the tour, they play for this much money because the tour works out a deal with the TV networks. Where, you know, they're, they're, it's all predicated on the best players playing on the PGA tour. And so that's what you, when you sign up to play on the tour, you have to sign and you, you basically kind of give them that right. 
And, you know, if they don't, um, if they don't have that, there's not going to be a billion dollar, uh, network, um, contract. So they're going to be playing for a lot less money. And, you know, if you, if you, if you, if these, uh, these 48 guys go and play in somewhere else, it may, it's going to be tough for the tour to, to keep that TV contract. But, you know, overall, I just think, I think it's Greg, Greg's got Nego and, um, it, it, I don't know. You know, he says, well, I'm doing it for the good of the tour and I'm going to, you know, do this and that. Well, why not just put all that money into the, you know, the Asian tour was what, you know, he's, he's kind of working this around the Asian tour, put all that money in the Asian tour. That'll, that'll do it. But it's just disappointing it, to see, you know, Phil and Greg and, and, and the other guys doing this. I don't see it. I don't see it working. And, and to me, the other thing is that bothers me is you're putting these young kids in a very precarious position where they're, they're not, they're not equipped to decide, um, if, you know, if I play this, I'm, I may not get to play the PGA tour. Um, and there has to be some consequence if you go play in those events. I don't know exactly what it is. You know, Greg says they're um, free agents and they can play wherever they want. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, he could have, you know, lawyers that are going to fight it and whatever. But, you know, it's just disappointing that he has come up with this thing again. Tom, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to go back into your playing career to the 1991 World Series of Golf. I had Jim Gallagher Jr. on the show last week, and you beat Jim and Davis Love the third in a playoff to win that event. The three of you were the only ones to finish under par for the week at one under par. It was played at Firestone Country Club, and we all know what a challenging golf course that is to play. What do you remember about that week? You know, I just remember um, remember being a really having a really good ball hitting week. Um, I drove it. I drove it really good, uh, hit good irons, and and for me, I putted decent. Um, and you know, kind of that was basically the whole thing for me. If if I putted decent in a week, um, I was going to have a good week. Um, I kind of, you know, basically struggled with my putter most of the time. Um, had had stretches where I putted okay, but I couldn't really. I didn't really have much confidence in my putting, you know. And I spent I spent most of my time hitting golf balls. Which is a little, it's a little counterproductive. You want to, that putter means a lot more than, uh, uh, you know, if you can't make those four and five, eight footers for birdies and stuff, it, it makes it pretty tough. But I just remember, you know, having a good week of ball hitting and, and being really confident with, with hitting the, you know, hitting shots and stuff. And Tom, talk just a little briefly about Firestone Country Club. Like I say, we, we all hear about what a difficult golf course that was. And like I say, the three of you are the only ones to break par. When I look at the leaderboard, Payne Stewart finished at plus five. Jose Maria Lothaba was plus 11. Paul Azinger was plus 17. Kenny Perry was plus 25. That's a heck of a golf course. And those are heck of players to shoot that far over par. Talk about Firestone Country Club and the difficulty playing it. Well, you know, that was back. When I think we were still playing woods and steel shafts and <laughs> and and a lot of balls. So 
Um, that made it a little tougher. Um, certainly, it's not the same golf course that the kids are playing these days. Um, I mean, we hit, you know, we were hitting mid irons and long irons and every one of those par fours. Um, you know, and nobody was getting it on 16. And um, it was just a heck of a golf course. You had to hit it, you know, both ways. Um, you couldn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't favor somebody that faded it all the time or, or drew it all the time. You, that, that golf course is, is really brutal. It was really brutal back then. It was, uh, you, you really had to have control of, um, um, your distances and where the ball was going to go. And Tom, speaking of brutal golf courses, we're a couple of weeks north of the players championship. You played there. Several times you finished tied for ninth in 87, tied for third in 1990. Talk about what you remember about being in the thick of it at the players championship. Well, to me, that, I think that's more of a major than some of the majors. Um, you know, you have the best field, uh, every year there. Um, everybody loves playing there and, you know, it's just, it's a great golf course. I remember, man, when we first played there, the first two years we played there, it was so hard. You know, if you missed the green, it was really a challenge getting it up and down. Then they they had to come in and soften it. Pete came back and softened it a little bit, but it's just a great golf course. It's it's uh there's there's a double bogey waiting on lurking on every hole. Um you know, but if you if you have control of your golf ball, if you play good, if you hit the ball good, you can definitely score there. Um, you, you know, and they've got holes like 17, which is, you know, that's, that's just one of those holes that you, you start thinking about on about the 14th hole. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, it's a great golf course and the tour runs it beautifully. And, you know, there's so much money involved now for the, for winning. And, um, but it was, it was one of my favorite tournaments all year. I, I look forward to that um, the beginning of the year. You talk about starting to think about 17 on around 14. Is the tee shot on 17 followed by the tee shot on 18, those two back-to-back, are those the two toughest tee shots in Oligal? You know, I don't know about 18. 18 is um, eighteen's a, it's a good driving hole, but I don't think there's other holes on, on that golf course that are just as tough, but, um, yeah, when you, when you get, when you get that ball on the green on 17, there's a big, uh, you know, just a, it's, it, <laughs> you, you, you kind of give yourself a pat on the back. Um, I, and it's at what, it's 125 yards long, but there's, there's, you know, if you miss hit it or if you catch it a little bit too good or you don't have the right club, it's, it's gonna, it, you're, it's gonna cost you. And, um, it's a, you know, it's positioned second from, you know, second to the end hole. And, um, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, you can, it can, you can win there, you can lose there. And Tom, Hal Sutton joined me a couple of weeks ago and he talked about Pete Dye and Dye's designs and we all know him as Diabolical Pete. But one of the things that, uh, Hal talked about is Pete designed trouble. So that it caught your eye. So you you became aware of where the trouble was on every hole because the golf the the course design pulled your eye in that direction. 
Was that something that you noticed about Pete? And is that true of other course designers or is that a Pete specialty? Um, I think it might be a Pete specialty. And that's a good point that Hal brought up. Um, uh, you, you definitely see, and, and the more times you play it, you notice, you notice those things. And, um, but yeah, when you first, the first time you ever play it, you're always, you know, your eyes catches, your eyes catch things that, oh, I don't want to go over there. Or, you know, um, you might want to stay, we want to stay to the right of that bunker or, um, the water. There's just so many, so many things that you want to, you want to play away from. And, um, you know, that again, that's the thing about it. You, if you have control over your game, it's, it's a, it's a golf course that you can score well on, but it's, it's just you see all, all the things lurking that can cause you problems. Tom, as we look ahead to next week's Masters tournament, was 1977, was that the first time you played at Augusta National? Um, yes, it was. Yeah, one early in the year. And, and, you know, I think everybody, everybody, the first thing they think about when they win a tournament is the Masters. I'm, you know, I'm in the Masters and, and, you know, the thing, the thing that I think, the thing that I think is neat about the Masters is it's, played at the same golf course every year and you get to where you you know the hole before you go play you've watched it year in and year out and um you, you hear the roars on tv it's it's a wonderful um wonderful tournament i i i the first i don't know four four three or four times i played there i thought it was just a putting contest and i was I was terribly wrong. Um, it's, it's actually a second shot golf course. You, you've got to place those iron shots in the right area of the green so you can have a, a, you know, a putt for a birdie. If you, a lot of times you'd rather have a 15 footer, 20 footer, one part of the green than a five footer on the, you know, above the hole or side. Um, I ended up playing defense. You know, most of the time, those first couple of years I played. Um, but then after that, I, I realized that, you know, hey, this is not a putting contest. It, it, I mean, it is a putting contest, but it's also you've got to place the, your your approach shot um, in the right part of the green. And speaking of Masters, I was fortunate enough to play with, with, the, with your other guest tonight, Mark Chalkovecki, when he shot 29 on the backside one year. That was wow. impressive. So the first time you show up, whether that's, you know, 77 or maybe you come back in 78, trying to learn the golf course, as you said, it it felt like a putting contest and you realized it was a second shot golf course. Did somebody, did you go out and play a practice round with some of the legends? Did someone take you under their wing a little bit? Did you approach somebody to say, hey, help me out here trying to, I'm trying to figure out the golf course. How do I play it? You know, I was a little, I don't know what the right word is, timid or whatever, but I just couldn't go up to, you know, the veterans and go, Hey, Jack, can I, can I play nine holes with you or 18 holes with you? Or, you know, Tom Weisskopf or, you know, some of the other guys. I just didn't, and I, I didn't, I didn't have, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't ask anybody and I, I should have. I had a lot of friends that I could have asked, but I just didn't do that. And it cost, 
you know, I think it, it cost me a little bit. You, there's so many, uh, nuances in that, at that, at that golf course that, um, it, it takes you a while if you don't let somebody give you some, um, some knowledge. Um, it takes you a, li- a few years to, you know, to go to know where to hit it on the green and to know where the best approach angle is coming from and stuff. So I, I kind of messed up and I didn't, I didn't ask anybody for help. And I, I wish I would have had I, you know, known then, you know, now what I know then I, I would have, I would have, um, gone to some guys and asked them. Tom, let's go forward a little bit to the 1982 Open Championship at Royal Troon. You finished tied for fourth that week, and you were one of, again, only a handful of guys to finish under par for the tournament. You started off 76-66. When you came off the course after the opening round 76, did you think there were 10 strokes out there for you to go get? <laughs> not not quite, Chris. But the, in what happened is that first round, uh, um, I had never, you know, that was my first British Open. And, you know, I was staying down, uh, I, air, I think where I was staying a little town and it was about 25, 30 minutes away. And, you know, it took us 25, 30 minutes to get there every day. Well, first round of the open, I get about six miles from the entrance, a parking lot. So I got, I got out of my car with 15 minutes before my tea time. And, you know, no, I didn't get to hit any golf balls. Um, just put my shoes on and went to the first tee and shot 76. And, you know, I was disappointed. Um, I was disappointed in not knowing or not thinking that there might be traffic or whatever. Um, but anyway, I, I shot 76 first day and the next day I played great. Um, shot 66, probably one of the better rounds of any any round that I played in a major. Um, and I love the golf course. Um, I love the Brit, I love the Scottish golf courses. They're so much fun to play. And, you know, it, you, you have to be a little more creative, um, and you got to hit different shots and stuff. So, um, it, it was, it was a blast. I really enjoyed it. And, and no, I kind of didn't, after that 76, I, I couldn't see 66 in, in my near, near future. Tom, you very nearly made a hole-in-one on 17 during the final round. You land the ball just short of the green, takes a couple of bounces, ends up about six inches from the hole. Talk about that shot, and when you're watching it bounce up there, did you think it might go in? Well, I, it was it was a little windy, and it's a pretty long par three, and I, I think I hit two iron. And, <clears throat> you know, it was one of those ones you, you just dream about. It's kind of like a frozen rope, and it was... Um, it, it was covering the pin the whole way. And, you know, you just, you don't ever know what, what bounce you're going to get when you get up there. And, uh, it, it just kept going right at it. And it, it looked pretty good, but, um, I, I, it wasn't one of those ones that looked like it was going in. It just it looked like it was going to be close, but it came at a good time, you know, making two on that hole last round, last day, um, was helpful. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners what you're doing now. Well, <laughs> I'm still still practicing a little bit. I'm going to play in the Arizona Senior Open here in a couple of weeks. 
Um, you know, it's funny. I still hit balls, and I, I just enjoy hitting balls so much. And you know, the thing that thing that I miss the most is is I miss my buddies on tour, and I miss the competition. You know, I miss competing, and I don't know that that's ever going to go away. Um, but I'm kind of biting the bullet a little bit. A couple guys have talked me into going to real estate school, so I'm, I, that's what that's what I'm doing these days. Is I'm back in a back in book work. I haven't done that in 50 years, so it's a little <laughs> different. Well, Tom, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of this show. I always enjoy listening to your stories. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope you'll do it again soon. Well, Chris, I always love being on your show, and and just like TP said, you're the best. You're the you're the best um, uh, interviewer that I've ever talked to. You you know your wow. stuff. You're you're you don't you don't miss anything, and uh, I just appreciate you having me on your show. Well, I can't thank you enough for that. That means a great deal to me, Tom. I look forward to hopefully getting the privilege of catching up with you after the uh, Arizona Senior Open and hearing how it goes. I hope you'll come back and join me. That'll be good. Anytime you want me on, Chris, I'll be there. Thanks, buddy. All right. Take care, Tom. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. That's a great Tom Perser, folks. And and um, like Tom Patry said, um, there's not a sweeter swing probably in the history of the game than Tom Perser. And if you layer on top of that, a great competitor and just a great human being and, and the great things that he did in the game and then around the game as well, boy, it's just, it sure is a privilege getting to spend some time with him. I hope we get, like I say, the privilege of doing it again very soon. Before I get to my next guest, Mark Kalkavecchia, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com, S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the Valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back in making his fourth appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkavecchia. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980, and he was named All-SEC in 1979. That season, Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981. 
got his first win on tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set a record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including that 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon in a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times so far on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he has 193 top 10 finishes and 351 top 25s. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Mark Kalk, and I'm thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm fantastic. Mark, how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, currently. Uh, Getting ready to play in the uh, Rapscan uh, tournament here, uh, which is a great sponsor. They uh, we have played here for three years, so it's, it's nice to be back. No doubt. And considering where you were a year ago, battling COVID, back surgery, if I would have told you then that a year from now you're going to be playing in a golf tournament, what would you have said? Well, I was hopeful. <laughs> uh, yeah, a year, year ago today, I wasn't feeling very good. I got to admit uh, uh, that. Uh, uh, fusion surgery uh, took a lot out of me. It took way longer than I thought to get over that. Uh, you know, I've had a bunch of knee surgeries and whatnot, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty tough. I can get over those pretty pretty easily. But uh, yeah, this one knocked me for a loop. So uh, it, it's it's nice to be back playing. I'm not a hundred percent. I think those those days of uh, have far left. A hundred percent in the equation. You know, if I feel about seventy-five percent, uh, that's good for me. So not where I'm at right now. So I feel deep. So how long did it take for you to start to trust the back again, like to kind of really let the swing go? Oh, it took a solid eight months. Uh, I, you know, I started off obviously just chipping and hitting hitting bunker shots, probably in July, which was uh, six months. Uh, six plus months from the surgery, uh, you know, and then I kind of got the wedges and, and once I started hitting out there about a hundred yards, it was still, you know, very iffy, uh, and scary. You know, I, I just, you know, my doctor said I, I couldn't hurt myself, but just, uh, you, you know, everybody says, don't, don't rush it. You know, don't come back too quick. Well, with a surgery like that, you can't come back too quick because your body will tell you that you're not ready to hit it yet. So once I started kind of bumping some wedges out there about 100 yards, uh, you know, a week later, I was hitting nine irons, eight irons, seven irons. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it took a solid uh, seven to eight months before I could make a what I felt like a, a semi-full swing. Uh, even Even today, even though I feel pretty good, uh, you know, I've lost another 20 yards off the tee from what I was before surgery. And I lost 20 yards 2015, basically, uh, in one year. If you look at my stats, I went from hitting at 289 to 69, uh, basically in one year. And, uh, now I'm bumping it out there about 250. So, uh, 
Uh, it's not good, but I'm old and, you know, that kind of crap happens. <laughs> so how many events are you hoping to play this year? I'm going to play probably 20 this year. Uh, I'm going to play a lot through, uh, through the British Open. Uh, by the way, this is my last uh, British Open at St. Andrews this year. Um, I'm 61. I'll be 62 in, uh, in June. And, uh, as a past Open champion, you're, you know, they, they exempt you until you're 60. Uh, but of course, 2020 got canceled because of COVID. And, uh, you know, last year I, I had the back surgery, so I was nowhere near ready to play. So I wrote him a big old long sappy letter and, uh, the RNA and said, uh, you know, I threw my kids in the mix. I said, you know, my, my kids have never been to St. Andrews and it would just be an amazing place. I really want to play my last Open. And, you know, St. Andrews would be a, an amazing place to end my British Open career. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, they, they love to take care of their uh, past champions. So, uh, anyway, so that's going to be my last Open. And then after that, uh, I'm probably really only going to play like one tournament for two months, uh, and just, uh, take it easy and, and, and play some towards the end of the year. But, uh, I'm, I'm slowly, winding down let's say so after playing at st andrews will you stick around to play the senior open championship while you're there oh 100 percent uh we played glenn eagles this year at the king's course which i played in a scottish open about 30 years ago uh i don't remember it but i remembered i liked it i, I think we played one round on the queen's course and one on the king's course and then the cut uh, and I remember I really, really enjoyed it there. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, so we'll see how that goes. And, Mark, when I look back at your 89 Open Championship, you needed to birdie the last hole to force a playoff with Greg Norman. So you had to pull off a great drive. You had to give yourself a good chance on your second shot to get to make birdie. Talk about being able to stand up on that 72nd tee, hit the tee shot you needed, hit the second shot you needed, and then roll in the putt all under the pressure of trying to get into a playoff and a major championship. Yeah, I did. I knew uh, I knew uh, Greg Norman was in at 13 under, and I was 12 at the time on 18T, and I, I hit a really good drive. Not my all-time best, but really good, and I was only about four paces short of uh of that coffin bunker that uh, Greg ended up hitting it into in the playoff. Uh and then I had a perfect yardage for a nice hard eight iron. And I, I rarely back off a shot, but I, I got up over it and I and it, like a wave of nerves hit me because I knew I had to birdie to have any chance. because uh, five holes behind me, Wayne Grady was he was fifteen under, so he was you know, he was still in command of the tournament. Which he led pretty much the whole week. Uh, but I knew if I had any chance, I had to bury the last hole and, and hit it in there close. And, uh, anyway, I backed off of it, regrouped and just hit a beautiful eight iron in there about three feet left of the hole. And I was super nervous on that putt and somehow made it right in the middle. And then actually Graves ended up bogeying 14 and 17. And, uh, next thing I knew I was in a playoff. Yeah, and then from there, right, you come back around to 18. Now, all of a sudden, you're in control of the golf tournament. But you, now you've got a five iron, 201 yards. You're, you're over in the right rough. You hit it to about seven feet to win the, to win the open. 
I mean, you could have three putted and still win. What's exactly. that like? Exactly. Uh, actually, the reason I hit kind of a crappy drive was back then I, I either hit a one iron or a driver off the tee. I, I, for whatever reason, I never hit my three wood off the tee. Uh, but in, I knew that bunker was reachable because, uh, you know, in, in, on the 72nd hole in regulation, you know, I was like I said, four paces short of it. So anyway, I just kind of fanned my drive out to the right. Because uh, I was all pumped up, and I didn't want to blow it in that bunker. And uh, anyway, so then Greg gets up there and just blisters one right down the middle of the slice fade. And uh, then I got uh, his late great caddy, uh, uh, Edwards, uh, what's his first name, uh, who passed away from ALS, unfortunately. Uh, right. Anyway, he, he just, as soon as Greg hit it, he said, beauty. And I was standing on the left side of the tee. And uh I'm kind of standing there looking at it. He already picked up his tee, and him and his caddy were gone. Still standing there on the tee looking at it. And I'm thinking to myself, if this thing kicks a little right, as hard as he hit that, it might catch a corner of that bunker. And it kicked right, bound, 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 was rolling. And I saw it catch the, the very left corner of that bunker. He had no idea. And uh anyway, uh, Bruce Edwards. Uh, anyway, so I got up there and, uh, had 201. I really didn't think five iron was enough, but there's OB over the green and I was in kind of some wispy grass. So I thought, uh, even with my copper beryllium, uh, I2, I catch a slight flyer, which I did, but the ball literally never left a spike stick. It was just dead straight, frozen rope right at the hole and it rolled up there and it looked like you know, back at 200 yards, it looked like it was about two feet from the hole. Uh, so that's when Greg jumped in the corner of that little bunker and, uh, you know, tried to hit, hit it as far as he could, which he did, but that was, that was probably his mistake. Uh, and he ended up, uh, in that cross bunker about 50 yards short of the green or 50 yards short of the green. And, uh, then he hit it in the clubhouse from there, which is OB, and then he just he didn't even finish the hole. And I was one under, and he was one under, and Grace was one over. So, yeah, I knew, uh, actually Wayne hit it that close, but I knew I could uh, uh, pre-putt from seven feet to win the open. Uh, so, uh, and I've never thought of this in my life, I swear to God. Uh, it, it crossed my mind. I said, whatever you do, don't double hit this putt. <laughs> if you watch the replay, I kind of short stroked it. I almost left it short. It just kind of got to the front lip and fell in, but I kind of hit and recoiled. And I was like, oh, that's how nervous I was. Uh, still, you know, you think you ought to be able to three putt from seven feet and win a tournament, but I was still so nervous. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Mark, I had Tom Pertzer on prior to you joining. And he talked about playing alongside of you at Augusta National when you shot 29 on the back nine. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, That was amazing. And the the two holes I didn't birdie, 11 and 12, I missed about a uh, 10-footer at 11 and a 6-footer at 12. Uh, You know, had I made those, I probably wouldn't have birdied the last six. But uh, you never know. But... uh, yeah, uh, most of them are tap-ins. Uh, I, I made a 20-footer at 10, 
And then from there on out, I hit two par fives, 13 and 15 and two. Uh, hit it close at 16, 17, 18. I, I might have made it like a 10 foot or 14, but that was just one of those, uh, you know, one of those stretches where my swing was just really on. I, I think I figured something out on the range, uh, that day, that morning. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it was so much fun. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that again. <laughs> no. And some of the scores I shot at Phoenix, and I'm like, how did I do that? <laughs> you know, golf is, is the, old, the old thing is when when you're playing great, you never think you're going to play bad again. When you're playing bad, you never think you're going to play good again. And every golfer goes through these stretches. Uh, so, yeah, but that was fun. Mark, I want to talk about the 2007 Pods Championship which you thought you had no chance to win after an opening round 75. You shoot 39 on the back nine. You actually wrote on your scorecard, I effing suck. And you told your wife, Brenda, to pack the truck and that you'd be leaving after your round on Friday. Then I read that you went out there and you bought a new putter. You came back, you shot 67, 62, 70 to win the golf tournament. And the only thing your wife, Brenda, regretted was that they erased your comment from the scorecard before they gave you the plaque with your four scorecards in it. Talk about how things turned around so quickly for you over the last three rounds and what you remember about that tournament. Well, I I, I hit the first 16 greens in a row, including two par fives, and I was even par. I, I think I had 37 putts of the day. I mean, I literally couldn't hit the hole from outside a foot and a half. Uh, and then hit a, my first bad shot of the day on 16 or on 17, the par three and find me upside a palm tree left of the bunker and I'm making triple bogey, went on to bogey 18 and w- was just mortified. Uh, I, I, two days before we left for the tournament, I bought a, uh, King Redwood putter at Edwin Watts in North Palm Beach. Uh, I didn't use it the first day, uh, but it was a putter that looked good to me and, and so I just bought it. I brought it with me, but I didn't use it the first day. And then, uh, I played in the afternoon the first day. So the next, on Friday, I played in the morning and I told Brenda we were staying in the condo, uh, right there in Nesbrook, uh, right off the uh, second tee. And I said, okay, when I'm done, have the truck packed, the Jeep, have the dogs ready. The sec- you know, as soon as I get back, we're leaving, we're driving home. You know, I'd already basically committed to missing the cut. Uh, so on the putting green the next, on Friday morning, I, uh, I put this ping redwood into play and I tried something on the putting green. I, I was just struggling. I was searching for anything. So I barely put my right hand on the putter. Uh, you know, I was using the claw at the time. Still am. Uh, started using that in 2001 and I thought to myself, okay, just pull with your left hand. I mean, the claw is basically a left-handed stroke anyway. The right hand is just on it for guidance to keep the putter face square, but it's a left-handed stroke. So I, my whole thought was pull with the left hand. I made a couple of nice putts in the putting green before I teed off. Uh, parred the first six holes, I think. Uh, you know, so I still needed a long way to go to make the cut even. I think I buried 16, 18, 1, and 2. And all of a sudden, um, I'm, you know, I'm right, right in the cut range. Uh, held on 
to shoot 67 and make the cut. Uh, made a couple, I made two 30 footers on eight and nine. I was choking because I wanted to make the cut. And, uh, you know, sometimes trying to make the cut is harder than, than anything because, you know, you hate missing cuts. Uh, anyway, went out and shot 62 on Saturday and, uh, 70 on Sunday and that ended up winning the tournament. Uh, that was one of those incredible, incredible stories, you know, I mean, just goes to show you, even if you don't have a very good first day, you've got three days to make it up. And I wasn't thinking that way after, after Thursday, certainly, but, uh, yeah, that was my last DJ tour win when I was 47 and, uh, uh, certainly one of my favorites. Mark, one more before I let you go. And when I look back at your golf swing and then I look at Scotty Scheffler's golf swing, I see a lot of similarities. Yeah. Between the two, am, am I imagining that, or do you see it too? Oh, hundred uh, percent. You know, his left foot slides back. Greg Norman did the same thing, and I did it. It wasn't by choice. Just, that was just my swing. And uh, you know, I was thinking the other day, uh, watching Scotty uh, win last week. I uh, watched a lot of the match play, and I'm thinking maybe I ought to try that. Uh, the only problem is, you know, my back isn't good enough and, and my body's not good enough to, to be that fast anymore. So, you know, obviously you have to have some club head speed to do that because basically what happens is, you know, you take it back and you clear your left side so fast, uh, your right leg kind of slides back or your right foot. Um, now my swing speed's unfortunately slow enough where that doesn't really happen. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, I, I still think about that every now and then that I should, I should try that, uh, or at least, you know, practice, uh, hit balls and, and do that. And what it does is it really helps you clear your left side, straighten your left leg. You know, Scotty hits a beautiful fade out there. And, uh, yeah, I love his swing. And I love his footwork. Uh, you know, I remember Ken Venturi roughed me up, uh, one time about it, uh, back in my heyday. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, that's, that's his swing. It doesn't work for everybody, but that's what he does. Uh, and, and same with Scotty. And certainly now he's the number one player in the world, having an amazing year. Uh, so yeah, uh, I, I really like it. I, I think it's super cool. Mark, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing out there and follow you on social media. Well, I'm at, on Twitter, I'm at, uh, Mark Calc. And, uh, even funnier, and I get most of my funny stuff from my wife at Brenda Calc. Uh, so give her a follow, everybody. She's, uh, she's the funniest, wittiest person, uh, I've ever met. And I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky and blessed to have her as my wife. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not done yet. Uh, I, I still love playing. I still love competing. Uh, I heard Tom say at the end of the, uh, last segment that, uh, that's what he misses most. You know, he, he missed the guys. You know, you miss, uh, you miss the camaraderie and, uh, all of us are great friends out here on this tour. And, you know, I, all the pro-ams I play in, I've, I've played with so many guys that have played both in the Champions Tour pro-ams and the PGA Tour pro-ams. And they have so much more fun with us because, you know, we're super personable. Uh, we've, we've been there. We've done that. Uh, most of us have been on the PGA Tour for 20 plus years. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, now it's, it's, it's 
the money is just insane. It's, it's such a business-like atmosphere out there on the PGA Tour where the guys have to have to be dead serious. Uh, we're not like that out here. Um, we we try as hard as we can. Guys practice all the time. Uh, we don't work out like the young guys do. Uh, maybe I should try that again somewhat, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still plugging away and, uh, still love, uh, love playing golf for a living. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're always so much fun to spend time with. I hope I get the privilege of doing it with you again soon. Yes, sir, Chris. Anytime. Uh, you got me. Just let me know. I appreciate it. Thanks for having it. me. You bet. Mark, take care. All the best to you and to Brenda and we look forward to catching up with you again soon. You got it, Chris. Thanks. See you, Mark. That's a great Mark Kalkovecchia. I tell you what, folks. Um, it's just so much fun having Mark as part of this segment. This, the the stories are fantastic. Uh, he's as genuine as they come and as honest and open. And, and that's all you can ask for from a guest is uh, to ask you, t- tell me a story. Tell me about what it was like to win the 89 Open. Tell me what it was like to be in that arena. Tell me, you know, what it's like, uh, you know, being a part of the champions tour and all of those sorts of things. And to go out and shoot, Oh, by the way, 29 on the back nine. If, if he, if he makes those other two putts and still goes on to make all the rest of the birdies, I don't know that, that they let him back on the grounds. Can you imagine 27 on the back nine at Augusta national? That's unbelievable. I can't imagine what the reaction would have been by the committee to, to see him come in with, with 27 on the scorecard. That's, that's something. But 29 is even fantastic as well. Anyway, Mark's a great guy. His wife, Brenda, they are both great follows on social media. I highly recommend you follow both of them. And I look forward to getting Mark back on the show just as soon as we can. Before I get to my next guest, Rick Fair, I want to remind you about our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide all Shields Sports Stores, all PGA Tour Superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXTT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the 2under website. also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip Golf Pride. Okay, now joining me is two-time winner on Tour Rick Fair. Let me give you some background on Rick. He's from Seattle, Washington. He won the 1979 National Junior Championship 
played his college golf at BYU, where he earned his bachelor's degree in finance. Rick was named All-American in 1982, 83, and 84, and he was the WAC Conference Player of the Year all three of those years as well. Plus, he helped BYU win the WAC Conference Championship all four years he was there. Rick was a member of the Cougars National Championship team in 1981, along with our friend Richard Zokel. Rick won the 1982 Western Amateur. In 1983, he was a member of the Walker Cup team that defeated Great Britain and Ireland 13.5 to 10.5. Rick was a low amateur in the 1984 Masters and U.S. Open. Turned pro in 1984 and joined the PGA Tour in 1985. Got his first win at the 1986 BC Open. Win number two came at the 1994 Disney World Oldsmobile Classic. Rick finished number one on tour in putting in 1998. And along with his two wins, he finished second nine times and had 41 top tens. In 1999, Rick was inducted into the BYU Hall of Fame. And in 2019, he was inducted into the Pacific Northwest Golf Association Hall of Fame. And I'm very honored. He is with me here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Chris. Great to join you. Rick, with first-time guests, I always like to start at the beginning. Where did your love for the game come from, and who was the first person to put a club in your hands? Well, probably like so many back in uh, the days when I was learning, uh, my father. My dad was uh, an avid golfer and a really good one. He won his club championship at our home course 21 times. (laughs) All said and done, uh, won the Washington State Open as an amateur. I think in 1962, the year I was born. So he was avid golfer, and then uh, I was introduced to the game at Sandpoint Country Club out here in Seattle. And I played a lot of other sports, but I fell in love with golf and and uh, went on from there. Kind of had some early success, won junior tournaments right away, and um, kind of just went from there and built one thing on the other. And um, by the way, your research is tremendous. I I wouldn't have been able to recount all those things I did many years ago. <laughs> So, Rick, you're talking about being so good at such a young age. Again, you won the the 79 National Junior Championship. I'm always intrigued. Talk about dealing with tournament pressure at such a young age. How did you deal with that? Well, it's interesting. Now that I reflect back after on the PGA Tour, obviously, and then now as many years as an instructor and coach, I feel like I understand it a whole lot better. path was uh, always competitive. You know, that, that's important. And I found a lot of motive, self-motivation. I didn't need anybody to tell me to get out there and practice. And I was out here in Seattle. I was often the only dummy on the golf course in the pouring rain. And I just <laughs> I had work to do and, and goals to achieve. Um, I, I, a friend of mine, Phil Blackmore, Maybe you've had Phil on, but uh, we chat from time to time. And, and, you know, we use the phrase self-belief and, and how, you know, I think that Mark, you know, Calcavecchia and Pertz and all these guys, you know, how do you, how do you grow that? I'm not entirely sure. I'm trying to figure it out, but, but I think from an early age, I felt like I could dig deep and, and beat the other guys. And, um, so, so I think that was a big part of it and, and, you know, still enjoying the game. Uh, always loving the challenge of of getting better, and uh, so whatever I just found it kind of found a channel for um, my drive and motivation, and it happened to be playing golf. 
And Rick, as a kid growing up in Seattle, again, having won a, a junior championship, I have to imagine colleges from all over the country were trying to recruit you. Who were some of the, the, the colleges coming after you? Which, which ones were you considering and how did BYU end up being the one you chose? Great question. Uh, so Seattle's not, not quite in the middle of the golf hotbed. And, and, and when I played junior golf, it was right, right when American Junior Golf Association was starting to kind of get its feet under itself. And, and it was probably more of a Southeast kind of thing. So, you know, we played a handful of tournaments out here, just, uh, the U.S. Junior and the PGA National Junior is the one I won there in 79. But yeah, I, I think coaches, coaches, Start figuring out there's a kid up here in the, in the Northwest that play a bit. And so Jesse Haddock at Wake Forest and Mike Holder at Oklahoma State. Um, Eddie Marins at UCLA and then who ended up being my coach was recruiting me and, and then kind of late in the game, uh, Stanford and David Yates. He was kind of a, um, became the coach at Stanford kind of at the end of my recruiting process and, uh, Anyway, I, I, I visited UCLA and, oh, and there was also Ohio State. I'm sorry, but I visited UCLA and Ohio State, BYU. And I just, uh, the kind of the culture and the atmosphere at BYU just felt like, Hey, if I'm going to tra- leave town and, and leave home and live somewhere else and play college golf, uh, BYU felt comfortable. I'm not, I'm not Mormon, but at the time we had, you know, quite a few of the athletes that were recruited weren't and, um, you know, BYU at the time had a great legacy of success, perennially top five in the country back in the back in the eighties when I was there. And uh, so anyway, that was so that was uh, landed at BYU, and it was a great four years, and we had a lot of success. Yeah. So talk about you. You mentioned how perennially they were there in the top five. I mean, the year before you get there, they finished second in the national championship, so they had pretty high expectations coming into your freshman year and then all of a sudden you guys win a national championship but talk about joining a team i mean talk about jumping into the fire you're on a team that's ready to win a national championship and then you go on and do it talk about that well the first thing we had to do was to get bobby Clampett to turn pro early and get rid of him um he (laughs) he left after his junior year you know so that you know the the tail of the tape is we would have been super strong if bobby you know, had stayed for a senior year. So we were probably, uh, you know, sort of our rankings or expectations obviously went down when Bobby left for good reason, right? He was ready to play professional golf. And, uh, and I came and I, you know, good, fortunately for me, I hit the ground running and, and our fall qualifiers actually as a freshman was winning those qualifiers and shooting crazy scores. So I was able to jump into the lineup right away and, had some early success and um you know we all really enjoyed each other great you know like you mentioned Richard Zokel and and other Clearwater and and other guys that were good friends and all really good players and we we all really well at Stanford golf course there in May and and uh knocked off Oral Roberts there down the stretch. Rick like I mentioned in your intro you were a part of the 1983 Walker Cup team you guys had Nathaniel Crosby was a part of that team, a U.S. amateur champion. Brad Faxon was another member of that team. Talk about your making that team and then going over to Royal Liverpool and winning the event. Yeah, uh, 
I suppose the way I got on that team probably it, it primarily was having won the Western Amateur, uh, losing the semifinals at the U.S. Am. So um, you know those two things. Obviously, a uh, couple of the the top amateur uh, tournaments and and got the attention of the USGA and the, the selection committee and um, wonderful, wonderful experience went over there. And that, that year, Jay Siegel was the playing captain. So he was the captain of the team and, and was a, also a, a player in the lineup. And he chose me as his, uh, um, as his partner in all the, the foursomes and four ball matches. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience. So a couple, 36 holes a day in practice and, I played all the matches, so it was a lot of work and pretty exhausted at the end of the day, but we uh, narrowly knocked them off over there at Royal Liverpool. Rick, you played in the Masters in 1983 and 84 as an amateur. I believe you missed the cut probably by a stroke, I think it was, in 83. You come back in your low amateur in 84 and tie for 25th in the golf tournament. That was the year Ben Crenshaw got his first win there. So you're there in, in Butler Cabin being interviewed by Augusta National Chairman Ford Harden for the CBS broadcast. You're there on the podium on 18, getting presented the Low Amateur Trophy. Talk about what that experience was like for you. Yeah, it's very fortunate. Uh, 83, unfortunately, I missed the cut by one stroke. I remember we had rain delays and um, Dr. Gil Morgan uh, parred eight to knock me out, meaning if he had bogeyed, uh, I would have been within 10 shots of the lead. So I missed by one that first time. Was fortunate to go back in 84 and played really, really well. I shot, I think it was 72, 71, 70 the first three days and was, I think I was tied for 12th going the last round. Uh, disappointing final round of 75, but um, uh, anyway, great experience and, you know, there's nothing like Augusta and uh, I think all of us uh, have felt the pins and needles you feel uh, like you're upon trying to get around 18 holes with, you know, and avoiding disaster and, and managing your way around. But uh, I was able to go back, I think, four more times as a professional. But but 84 as an amateur was probably the probably the, the best best experience I had there. You went back in 86. You finished tied for 36. But the 86 Masters is my favorite golf tournament ever. Did you stick around to see Jack Nicholas win it? I, I did not. I did not. Uh, I wish I had. Obviously, there was sometimes you don't know history is unfolding around you. And I've been asked. I was on the golf course a few holes behind Tiger when he made his hole in one at at the uh, Waste Management or the Phoenix Open, and I didn't hear a darn thing all the way out there on thirteen. But um, no, that's one of the greatest wins of all time and obviously Tiger has done some pretty special stuff since then but I don't know if it was in 86 but uh, a memory of Nicholas and I don't know what year it was but I think one of the greatest feats of all time is Jack Nicholas made two on the fifth hole twice in the same event you know in tournament play which is probably one of the toughest par fours that nobody ever sees but uh, yeah I mean Jack Nicholas is legendary and, and a wonderful man too Rick, you get your first win on tour later that year in 86 at the BC Open. You win by two strokes over Larry Mize and finish two strokes off the tournament record, making four birdies on the front nine in the final round to get that win. Talk about 
what it was like getting your first win on tour. Yeah. Uh, such a neat event, and I know it's found its way over to the Champions Tour now, but that community up there in Endicott, New York, has always done a great job, and it's a favorite stop for, for a lot of tour players through the years. But um, it's interesting. I had a horrible uh, uh I didn't enjoy myself there, let's say, in 1985. I think I was grinding away and um, played poorly, and I think the weather was lousy. And so I didn't go there in 86 expecting much and uh, uh, got things going and, and played well. And I recall just wedging it in close uh, all week long. The par fives, a little soft, and I was I was laying up on par fives and wedging it in close, making birdies and maintained that all four days and uh you know uh again i i think i was fortunate early on in my my playing career junior golf and college and amateur i learned to win and um i think when i got close to the lead i think i managed to kind of stay in the thick of it and finish it off but obviously uh there's nine seconds to go with the two wins so maybe i didn't have the greatest conversion rate but uh yeah i felt comfortable out front and in the thick of it and Fortunately, that week I managed to pull it off. And Rick, you talk about grinding away. It, it was eight years before you would get your second win, but you kept knocking on the door in the early 90s. You got into a playoff at the 91 Greater Hartford Open, at the 92 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic, and at the 92 Memorial Tournament as well, and then again at the Sprint International. Talk about the fortitude to keep knocking on that door and not getting discouraged. Man, I tell you, it's uh, it's easy to point to those good weeks, but there's an awful lot of a lot, lot of struggle. And I think getting to know your own game. And uh, you know, I I jumped on the line here enough to hear the you know, last ten or fifteen minutes. I think he said that you know when you're playing bad, you never feel like you're going to play well again, and when you're playing good, you never feel like you're going to struggle again. And and I think that. Um, you know, even in today's game, now that I'm a, I'm in the coaching end of things, um, you know, it's just interesting to understand how do we, uh, looking back, I think all of us, when we get down the road a bit in life, we feel like we've learned a lot and, and hopefully I can help others to kind of make the, make the struggles a little more brief and, and extend the good play. But I think, uh, I think in this day and age, I think, uh, what's missing is a lot of people maybe don't understand their own game. You know, there's, we're exposed to so much, um, whether it's something somebody thinks is perfection when it comes to a golf swing or a putting stroke or whatever. And, and I think that I would have had even a more sustained, uh, level of good play if I had kind of stayed to myself. You know, I think when we go through struggles, we're looking for new ideas and opinions. And, um, I look back and it's like, darn, I wish I just stayed with kind of what I had and had not, gone and seen that instructor or whatever else. But, um, but I think that I think, uh, in my coaching now and, and helping other golfers play well, um, it's super noticeable to me that there's a lot of people that simply do not, that simply do not understand the process, uh, of learning and playing well. And I think that, um, you know, that you've got to, you got to push through some things. You got to, I think one of the couple of the hardest workers I've ever seen are Tiger Woods and Bernhard Langer. And, you know, look at that. Or even a VJ Singh. And, and these, these guys have sustained great play for a long period of time. So, um, 
you know, working hard, knowing what to work on. Um, I, I think that what I had was tenacity and, um, and just, you know, would stay at it. I think I also learned, uh, early enough in my career when it was time to just step away and take time off. And, uh, I think sometimes, you know, you've got to know when it's time to go home for a few weeks and, uh, and kind of refresh. So, um, you know, I, I think again, I, I, I had a certain level of talent that was good enough to play at that level. And, you know, I hung in there long enough for things to turn around once in a while. And then inevitably it ends when you can't turn it around anymore. So, um, but anyway, really, really fortunate and blessed to have had the career I had. Rick, just a couple more before I let you go. And speaking of finally turning it around, you, you knocked the door down in 1994 at the Disney World Oldsmobile Classic. You win there by two over Craig Stadler and Fuzzy Zeller. You and Stadler were, were tied going into the final round, but you almost didn't make it to the golf course in time for your tee time on Sunday. I read you got there 15 minutes before you were supposed to tee off. Talk about the events of that morning and how you were able to kind of calm the nerves, get rid of the stress, and then go out and win a golf tournament. Yeah. Yeah. So like so many other players, Disney week is a fun family time. And, uh, I had my wife, Terry and, and our two youngest, uh, or two oldest, I should say with us that week. And, uh, we had a courtesy car. We were staying, renting a condo in Lake Buena Vista. And, and I had late tea time and I thought, yeah, I told Terry to, to take, take the boys and one last day at the parks and, and that sort of thing. And hey, I'll just have tournament transportation pick me up. Well, I had arranged for a ride and tournament transportation wasn't showing up. <laughs> Believe it or not, Chris, there weren't cell phones back. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones and stuff. And so I'm running back into the condo and, and actually yellow pages, looking at yellow pages, trying to get a cab, desperately trying to find somebody to come pick me up because I'm, you know, whatever, I'm a few miles away from the course and, Finally, tournament transportation showed up, got me to the course there with 12 or 15 minutes to spare. And I think the person panicking the most was my caddy. And Jim Friedman was hanging in there, and I threw on some shoes and went and probably hit 12 shots on the range and headed to the tee. And, you know, it, it may be that it kind of took my focus away from all the, the other stresses. And I went out there and played played a pretty good round of golf. And, um, Kind of funny. It's a the trophy. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a big brass inlaid deal with uh, Donald and Mickey and Goofy, you know, on top of it. And so I won a trophy with Donald and Mickey and Goofy and beat a guy named Fuzzy and and uh, and the <laughs> Walrus. So I knocked off Fuzzy and the Walrus to win the Donald, Mickey, and Goofy. But not quite. It doesn't have the feeling of a major, but it was a pretty important event. <laughs> And, and Rick, just a, a comment in the round. I, you hit your tee shot on the par three twelve, and you buried it in the bunker. But you managed to blast it out to six feet, and you saved par. Sadler had birdied the first four holes on the back nine, but said that was an amazing up and down that you had. Talk about how key that sand save was to propelling you on to victory. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, thanks for jogging the memory. Uh, it's one of those things that you could say, oh, this is, yeah, this is what I did that was different. It's just, no, I think that, um, it was obviously the momentum was going 
in Craig's direction. Obviously, I hit a poor tee shot there. And and I just think that what I could point to, and this might be some help to if there's any young aspiring players listening. I don't know. It's a bunch of us old guys talking. But, but anyone out there that uh, you don't know what condition or what kind of shot is going to be called upon. You know, there's no two shots are the same. So I just think in practice and in training, get as creative as you can and try every darn shot you can find. And, um, you know, you learn cause and effect. And, you know, I, I knew how to hit a shot from a buried lie and, you know, kind of firm, firm base in the bunker. And, you know, it happened to come out really nice, obviously, to hit a shot, you know, out of that kind of lie to six feet. But, um, you know, I was prepared. And, uh, I executed, but, um, you know, I was only two for about 400 as far as the 400 tour events and one twice. So, um, it didn't always come off, uh, that well, but I think if you stay at it long enough, you know, your time's going to come. Rick, before I let you go, remind our listeners, you talked about your coaching, talk about what you're doing now and how we can stay up to date with you, whether it's on your website or it's over social media. Yeah, I probably, probably the, I haven't put too much out there lately, but, uh, probably Twitter is the place where I, I might share more, more thoughts and, and, and ideas. And that's at Fair Golf, F-E-H-R-G-O-L-L-F. Um, uh, Twitter is, doesn't really suit my style quite as much, but I'm there at Rick Fair. And then, and then the website's, uh, there's not a whole lot there. So I just point you to, to Twitter and, and Instagram, and then what I'm doing is uh, I'm the director of instruction at a, a the top private club out here in Washington State, Aldera Golf Club. We're hosting the Pac-12s here this next month, and just fantastic club with great membership and uh, um, do a lot of coaching, and primarily to the the members here at the club. But I also teach some some folks who aren't members and and love what I'm doing. Just feel like I've learned a lot and. Uh, I am passionate about continuing to learn, figure out how guys like Cal Kurtz and I played well and, and how Tiger did it and Paula Morikawa and, and then trying to share that, that wisdom with others. So it's kind of my new, my new deal. I poured myself into competitive golf and now I've poured myself into coaching and I'm going after it with the same sort of, uh, intensity and enthusiasm. Love it. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your evening to come and be a part of the show. Learned a lot from you. You got a lot of great stories. I hope we get the privilege of having you back sometime. Oh, I'd love to do it, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Rick, take care. All the best in your family. Look forward to catching up soon. That is Rick Fair. F-E-H-R is the spelling of his last name. And uh, at Rick Fair on social media. And uh, you talk about a guy who was a grinder, you know, I love the fortitude. He kept knocking on that door. Got a win and then just kept knocking on the door, getting himself into a playoff. Didn't always work out, but continuing to push forward and then got his second win. And uh, now he's doing some great things as an instructor. But uh, Rick's a great guy. And uh, like I say, I hope we get to, uh, to catch up with him again soon. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Tom Pertzer, Mark Kalkovecchia and Rick Fair for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are a great friend of the show and four-time winner on the PGA Tour, Tim Simpson, will be back, as will one of the top instructors in the game and the host of the Golf Kingdom TV show, Rob Strano, 
will be here. As will 21-time winner between the PGA and Champions Tours, John Cook will be back. Looking forward to having Cookie back as part of the show. Then we'll round it out with PGA Class A professional and the host of the pro show, Keith Stewart. So, folks, it's going to be a great show. I hope you'll come back and join us and be a part of it. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Podbean. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to stay up to date with what our future guest schedule looks like. Plus, we've got links on there for you to recent episodes and individual guest segments. Folks, I can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to this show again tonight. I know you've got a lot of golf podcasts to choose from. I am very thankful that you are making Next on the Tee one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.